Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today I have a special guest for you. Uh, this is a great book. It's called Motor City Green, A Century of Landscapes and Environmentalism in uh, Detroit. The publisher is, oh, uh, let me flip to it. It's published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. And the author is Joseph Sayadella. And uh, thank you for being here today, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to to chat. Did I say your last name right? You did. Yep. Okay. I like to be careful about that. There you go. Uh, so, uh, Joe, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. So, currently, I work at the University of Michigan, where I manage the program in public scholarship, which helps connect um, graduate students um, and academics to communities and and um, public audiences through their work. Um, but prior to that, I, I got a graduate degree in American Studies from the University of Michigan, um, where I studied environmental history, urban history, and and those interests are really what led me to to be interested in Detroit, um, and and think about the ways that nature and and the environment and the landscape have have been a part of Detroit's history. Uh, well, tell us uh, what is your academic background? Where did you uh, what what degrees do you have? I have a doctorate from the University of Michigan, um, a certificate in museum studies, and a, um, a bachelor's degree in arts and ideas and the humanities, also from the University of Michigan. So I've been around Michigan, Southeast Michigan, and Detroit for, for quite a while. Oh, okay. You sound like a well-rounded uh, Renaissance kind of guy. Yeah, a humanist at heart, I guess. <laughs> um, so tell us, what was your motivation for writing this book? Yeah, well, I had... Growing up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is on the other side, opposite side of the state from Detroit, I didn't know too much about the city. My parents are from Chicago, but I went to college at the University of Michigan and was really fortunate to get involved um, in some community-engaged learning courses and opportunities to work in Detroit um, and, and be a part of some of the gardens in the city. Um, and that really led me to become interested not only in kind of what activists and community members were doing in the present, but kind of the longer history of of thinking about nature and and gardens and parks in the city of Detroit. So I was really struck by the work that was happening um, in the kind of present day moment in the city around nature and urban gardens. Um, but being someone who's who's really interested in the past, I was curious kind of what the longer history of those kinds of of spaces are. Um, so tell me a little about Detroit. Now, I I grew up in Florida, and um, you know all I see is what's in the news media about Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in your in your in your first chapter, I was surprised. Greening Detroit's history. It was uh, it's surprisingly green. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about Detroit? Yeah, I mean, so Detroit has a really long history that many people know as home to the auto industry and. Um, you know, a really industrial kind of history about making products, making cars, um, making industrial um, um, things, products. But what really um, struck me and that I think most people don't know about Detroit is that it actually has a long history of, of kind of urban greening efforts, community gardening, and, and really um, everyday environmentalists who tried to make it a greener um, 
greener city and thus a better place to to live in. So I think many people think of its industrial past or or kind of its present as as a post-industrial sort of city that's that's seen periods of decline. There's some revitalization happening in parts of the city now, but it's pretty uneven. And I think um, the the kind of grassroots community greening efforts are really about um, trying to create a more equitable city, um, greater access to food for residents, which you don't kind of don't see on the news every day about Detroit. But but really, there's a lot of open land in the city, and that's kind of what sparked a lot of the urban greening efforts. Is that there was this kind of land, whether it had been abandoned of its former uses um, or or was just kind of open space that was always there. I think Detroit is a very open and, and spread out city, and that's what people who aren't from there or haven't been there kind of don't always um, know about it. It has kind of a really vibrant life and um, a green life kind of beyond the ruins that that are often seen on on media depictions of the city. Okay, so uh, yeah, I didn't know. I I've always thought of it as crime and 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 et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, now you start with uh, parks and potatoes. Uh, what uh, what is this chapter about? Parks and potatoes. How did this get started? Yeah, so in the late nineteenth century in Detroit. Um, is kind of the moment that I look to as the starting point for for kind of urban gardens and and park building in the city. Um, there was a mayor in Detroit during the economic recessions of the 1890s called Hazen S. Pingree, who developed a plan to cultivate gardens on vacant lots in the city um, as a way to kind of feed um, the laboring classes in Detroit um, who were unemployed during that period. Um, so these potato patches, they grew potatoes primarily because they are starchy and, you know, have a lot of um, caloric value in that sense. Um, but they also grew everything from green beans um, to, to zucchini and other vegetables on these plots. And it was really a way for um, the working class in Detroit to, to feed themselves. Um, and kind of it had this other element of quelling kind of social unrest um, that might have that might have come about if, if people hadn't had a means to feed themselves since they were unemployed. Um, and kind of the parks element of that is at the same time as you have these potato patches, there's a, a park in Detroit called Belle Isle Park um, that was designed in part by Frederick Law Olmsted. And so that was more the kind of space that was endowed with middle-class, upper-class kind of bourgeois values of, of open green space in the city. Um, there were kind of rules that you followed when you were there. Um, during the late 19th century. And so there's kind of this contrast between the different meanings of, of nature and, and green space in the city. So on the one hand, there's people growing food. And on the other hand, there's kind of this leisure space. And so kind of what I was interested in is the um, these kind of competing notions of what counts as, as urban nature during different moments in Detroit's history. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that uh, he... Uh, designed a park for Detroit. I've never, I've never even heard about it. Yeah, so it's not one of his. You know, Olmsted is really well known for Central Park in in New York City, but he had projects all across the country, and and Belle Isle was one of those. the The designing started in the 1880s um, as the city was looking for a space for a park. They kind of chose this island park out in the river because actually the land was less valuable um, and and maybe not as ideal for a park as some of the the land along the riverfront in Detroit, but that's kind of where they landed because it was less expensive to purchase and didn't kind of compete with um, the need for land closer to the city for for factories, for industry, for for commercial development. 
Um, and they really hired Olmsted because they wanted to have a, a really prominent park like New York Central Park. Um, he eventually, he did start the designs and kind of um, through some disagreements with the city, um, didn't come to kind of fully realize or complete the plans, but it kind of got developed in a more ad hoc manner throughout the rest of the, the late 19th century. And, and the city really continued to adapt it and change it throughout the, the first part of the 20th century as well. Is it is any of it is any remnants of it still there today? Yeah, Belle Isle Park is still a really popular spot in the city. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the later chapters, but the because of some of the financial issues in Detroit, the state actually took over operating Belle Isle Park, um, and it's actually a state park now rather than a city park, which sparked some controversy in the city and is kind of part of this long history of of who has control of of parks and and nature and green spaces in in Detroit. But it's still a really vibrant green space, and a lot of the elements of Olmsted's design, um, like a long central parkway and and a more natural forest area, are still. Um, very much a part of it. Originally, you could only get there by boat, but the city built a bridge um, once cars became a more prominent means of of transportation. So, um, in this book, in general, so in, in your in your research and your studies, how uh, how does Detroit? Uh, how does this apply to other cities too? Um, what, what what are some things that they did did right, and what were some of the things that you found that they? Um, could improve upon in the past and and right now. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things they did did right um, were kind of getting buy-in from from many grassroots groups, um, thinking about more contemporary urban gardens. But I think in the kind of broad scheme of of greening in Detroit, um, what they did right was really think about. Um, the ways that nature and green spaces and parks were needed alongside industry to make to make an industrial city like Detroit a more hospitable and, and human place to live. So that's where you find both city leaders and grassroots groups kind of looking to green spaces as a way to improve the quality of life in Detroit. I think there are obviously different people have different notions of, of what... Um, what kind of green spaces are are most useful and meaningful to them. And so that's where kind of the interesting conflicts and tensions and, and pr- sometimes productive spaces can come into play. So I think they really, what they got right was, um, yeah, the need for, for green spaces to make um, cities livable. And I think that's and, applicable across, yeah, many different industrial cities as, as well as others. As, as how they do that. So, um, you cannot grow lilies in ash barrels. So that was interesting. So they came, the first building they built was a bow art style building. Um, so you've really got a lot of like different class classes going on in Detroit. How did that affect like the green spaces? And it sounds like in your book, like you're contrasting um, a lot of that. How did, how did it all, how did it all work together? Yeah, definitely. So during the period when there's a lot of Beaux-Arts city planning and design in Detroit, it's the same time when a lot of African-Americans, African-American communities from the South are moving to the city. So you have these um, neighborhoods that are very much left in the shadows of of larger Beaux-Arts kind of design projects. Um, and then kind of the main central areas of the city that are the focus of, of development and beautification and, and greening. Um, alongside that, there are a lot of in African-American neighborhoods, both African-American run organizations that are interested in kind of cleaning up what they saw as derelict neighborhoods, and then city leaders who are kind of interested in improving the image of Detroit and trying to clean up neighborhoods. And one of the ways they did this was trying to encourage 
Um, in this chapter, I talk specifically about the ways the city and, and middle-class African-American leaders tried to encourage um, new migrants to the city, African-American migrants to the city to um, plant gardens and improve their yards as a part of the wider cleanup efforts in the city. Um, and that was met with some success, especially once um, certain groups of African-Americans were able to move into the middle class and purchase homes. Ornamental gardens really became prominent. Um, but in lower class African-American communities, oftentimes there are individuals who who had gardening traditions that they brought with them from the South and continued to plant vegetable gardens um, that were a little more to middle class viewers kind of maybe looked um, sloppy or less organized um, and, and kind of went against the Beaux-Arts kind of image of, of a really orderly, neat city. Um, and so there were campaigns to try and get these um, more vegetable garden looking spaces to be neater and, and more ornamental. So that's something I look at in that chapter in the book. So the idea was that these gardens went hand in hand with kind of improving the the status and image of African-American communities in the city, both on the part of white leaders and, and middle-class African-American leaders in Detroit who really wanted to improve their what they saw as their racial group by having their yards and gardens look, look neater. Uh, well, that kind of sounds like uh, today, you know, uh, a lot of homeowners associations and stuff don't want you to have a vegetable garden in the front because that's just unsightly. Exactly. Yeah. So this is kind of the longer, longer history of that. And it's especially in Detroit, where there is a large African-American population and, and distinct African-American communities. Um, it really has a, a racial dynamic as well. Oh, that's so now the City Beautiful movement in Detroit um how did, did they, were they successful? Did they change anything with that culture or, you know, did it pretty much stay the same and, uh, until today too? Yeah. I mean, they were relatively successful in, in some ways they improved kind of, there's this main area in Detroit along Woodward called the cultural center where the Detroit Institute of Arts is the main branch of the Detroit public library. So they kind of built these Beaux-Arts buildings and, um, with with kind of classical design principles, so it was kind of successful at the time in in really giving Detroit a really um, interesting architecturally interesting central city where the kind of commerce was, um, but it didn't really reach all the way into a lot of the neighborhoods. And oftentimes, um, housing was such a big issue for especially for African American communities in Detroit. They were crammed together and really. Um, you know, oftentimes unsafe or or just really crowded housing conditions. And um, this was sometimes at odds with the City Beautiful movement, which wanted to create kind of neighborhood parks sometimes. And that meant tearing down housing that was really needed at the time. So there's this tension between how do you create green spaces that are meaningful and, and useful while also having housing and, and um, you know, places to, to live. And so there's a tension there that I think um, means that the the city beautiful movement in Detroit was really a mixed um, a mixed success, um, especially for for African American neighborhoods. Um, now, tell me a little bit more about um, you talked about the East Side. I tell you, this could be this is May nineteen twenty two, but this could sound like today. It says our housing problem is becoming more and more acute. Rents are climbing, and old dilapidated buildings, which are not fit for habitation, are being uh, put back into use, you know, has, has things changed in Detroit or um, are they still having like, the same issues from the last, um, sounds like almost a hundred years? Yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, I think some of the issues, like the broad issues around housing, access to affordable housing are still definitely there. How they play out is a little bit 
bit different now. Um, often now, it's not so much a problem of, of finding housing, but the housing values have dropped so much that it's hard for people to move or or get loans to improve their houses. There are eviction issues in Detroit. Um, and I think that's in some ways because people don't have the ability to move, unfortunately, um, that's why they've they've taken up the task of really um, or it's fallen on them to to create a more vibrant neighborhood and more vibrant city through things like community gardens and and really coming together as a community and, and group of activists to improve the city since um, oftentimes city leaders and, and others are unwilling and, and unable to kind of help and, and create a more equitable city. So it really fa- the burden falls on the people that have been in the city a long time um, to, to try and improve it. Um, without much much support, so I think that's kind of the through line that's that's been there for almost a hundred years, um, even though it's played out differently over time. So now I'm not from Detroit. Is it kind? Of, you talk about an east side and a west side. Uh, was, is there is there really a difference? Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So at the time that I'm talking about in in the second chapter of my book, there there is a pretty big difference between the east and west side of the city, and, and in some ways there still is today. Um, the east side was kind of where many African American migrants to the city first and first had their first kind of places of residence, whether that was an apartment or a small house, maybe. And the east side is really where European immigrants and migrants um, first came to and settled. So it's really kind of the immigrant neighborhood of the city. Eventually, there's a more vibrant African-American corridor, um, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, which were strong business districts until highways were built and kind of um, destroyed those those vibrant African-American cultural areas. Um, and so the east side has the reputation of being the more kind of lower class um, neighborhood and area of Detroit. And the west side, um, at least in the 20s and, and 30s through the 40s, was kind of the, the more middle class neighborhood that African-Americans especially moved to um, once they had the means, if they developed the means to economic means to, to move out of the crowded east side. This is kind of more suburban looking homes, even though they're within the city on the west side. Um, more space for gardens, um, ornamental gardens. And then kind of farther west, you have the Eight Mile Wyoming neighborhood, which is almost on, at that time was kind of outside of the city limits, um, where many lower class African-American, African-Americans moved because there were spaces for gardens. And these are kind of um, some of the first really more suburban communities that they moved to because there was, you know, the possibility of, of having a, a a vegetable garden and and a means of gaining sustenance since they often didn't have another means of of growing um, fresh vegetables and and fruit. So, uh, and did you find your research? I'm I'm guessing um, or assuming did the African Americans move to Detroit after the Civil War uh, for a better life? Was that the general idea? How'd they get there? Yeah, it wasn't quite after the Civil War. It was at the um, beginning of the, the 20th century, really, is when there was a, a really strong, um, vibrant kind of um, movement of African-Americans to Detroit. And then again, kind of around World War II. And this is because there's really more industrial development in Detroit during this time. And so the attraction of jobs and a better life that that wasn't sharecropping, that um, there was this promise of kind of a better life through industrial labor. And so 
when many came to Detroit, they were, you know, probably excited to leave behind farming and, and gardening. Others wanted to keep some of that with them when they moved to the city. So that kind of influenced the choices of, of where they lived or where they eventually um, ended up in the city. Um, so how did this, like, I guess, uh, moving along here, in, in Chapter 4, you talk about metropolitan parks and regional inequality. So, um, you know, how did all this contribute to, to the regional inequality? Where is the regional inequality uh, in Detroit? Yeah, I mean, so as historians like Thomas Segrew would point out, the the kind of roots of um, regional inequality in Detroit really started in the in the mid 20th century after World War II and, and shortly before with things like redlining that um, designated certain areas where African-Americans couldn't move or, or could move, and that really confined them to certain neighborhoods in the city. Um, you have a, a widespread movement of, of white residents to suburbs um, where, where African-Americans um, couldn't easily, easily move to. Um, and so kind of as a piece of this, there's um, a, a proposal, a successful proposal in the mid 20th century in Detroit for, for building kind of metropolitan parks and bringing more green space to the city since it had seen really widespread industrial growth in the 20th century and people were concerned about, you know, a lack of green space in the city again. Um, Belle Isle Park, Palmer Park, Rouge Park were kind of the three biggest parks in Detroit, but they were still relatively small and, and not easily accessible. So there was kind of a proposal put forward for metropolitan parks to preserve some some land on the outskirts of the city. And, and at the time, they advocated for kind of a riverfront drive that would preserve land and create park space in the city of Detroit, but they needed money to pay for it. Um, so they put a proposal before voters in kind of the five-county region surrounding Detroit and including Detroit, um, which which passed with pretty overwhelming success to, to fund this metro- metropolitan park system. Um, Detroit at this time had a larger population than any of the surrounding outlying suburban and rural areas that would also be home to some of these parks. Um, so the D- Detroiters really ended up um, paying for most of these these parks that even though it was billed as something that would benefit Detroit and, and that there would be parks and a riverfront drive in the city, all of the parks really ended up being for a variety of reasons, built in outlying areas that were pretty far from the city and and not easily accessible unless you had access to transportation. Um, And so this created a lot of tension between Detroit and its suburbs and and meant that the distribution of green spaces was pretty inequitable across the region. Um, And then you have kind of this movement of people to the suburbs because they're closer to some of these parks and more easily accessible recreational opportunities. These are mostly white Detroiters who are leaving the city um, for other counties and other cities that are outside of Detroit. Um, and so they're they're building these parks and, and Detroiters eventually by the 1970s are, you know, kind of wondering why a park still hasn't been built in Detroit. Um, Belle Isle during the 1970s is having a lot of maintenance issues because industry and and people and tax dollars are leaving the city, so they can't really afford to upkeep their parks, which is contributing to the inequality around green space. Um, So they try and put forward um, another ballot proposal to fund explicitly parks being built in Detroit um, through this metropolitan um, park building organization, the Huron-Clinton Metropolitan Authority. Um, so named because most of the parks follow the ring of the Huron and Clinton rivers, which make kind of a big loop around the really far exterior of the city of Detroit. 
Um, so they are, they try to put forward another ballot proposal because the organization is saying they don't have the money to build parks in Detroit because they built all these parks kind of on the outskirts of the city and, and their current funding is kind of used to maintain those parks. Um, but the ballot proposal that's put forward in the 70s across the five counties ultimately doesn't pass because so much of the po- political power has shifted to the suburbs with um, with white residents of the region and they have their parks and are pretty happy. So um, happy with them. Um, and so at that time, there's no way to kind of get more funding to build parks in Detroit because so much of the political power has, has shifted to the suburbs where they're looking around and saying, you know, we have great parks and access to them. If Detroit wants a park, they should build their own without really looking at the longer history of, of using Detroit's tax dollars to really fund these parks originally in the 40s and 50s on the outskirts of the city. So that's kind of part of what I look at as, as contributing to the regional inequality among other other um, economic and social factors that contributed to racial inequality, class inequality across across Metro Detroit. Uh, Ross, you talk about like the proposed playground of Southeast Michigan on page, it's 106, uh, mm-hmm. and they have the radiating lines. And uh, and so if with the Green New Deal, they, they, they were only just able to make it happen for the suburbs areas then. And it just didn't really did it take hold uh, later on in the... Uh, did it pass any of those ballot initiatives inside Detroit or no? No, it ultimately didn't, except for the original one, which was kind of um, advertised as benefiting Detroit, but really only funded parks in the outlying regions. And there were a lot of debates about getting the Huron-Clinton Metropolitan Authority to maybe fund the maintenance of Belle Isle as a regional metro park because it was at the time visited by more people on any given day than than visited any one of the um metropolitan parks. So really Belle Isle functioned as a regional park, even though people in the suburbs weren't really, even though they were visiting Belle Isle often, in addition to these other parks, they weren't really paying for its upkeep and contributing equally to its to its upkeep. Um, but they didn't want to pay extra to, to have to do that, essentially. And so there wasn't really ever um, uh, a funding measure passed to fund more parks in Detroit. And then when Detroit's, if we fast forward a little bit, financial crisis hit, um, ultimately the state of Michigan had to take over the maintenance of Belle Isle Park, um, because the city didn't have funds to do it. Many Detroiters were upset with that. It means that state police are on the park, um, rather than city police, um, which presents some issues. And, um, really it meant that even though it's kind of an agreement, it's not like the state actually owns Belle Isle, but it's an agreement for maintaining it. But many Detroiters kind of saw that as a, um, a blow because it meant that they were kind of losing essentially the ability to control some aspects of, of their main city park. So, um, well, now let me ask you, you know, with parks and such, um, these are mostly just leisure parks. Cause I know, um, in some places I was reading about like Nelson bird bolts, they do some parks, they were advocating like some agriculture and such in parks. Uh, did any of these parks ever serve an, any kind of agricultural purpose or were they just leisure parks? I mean, most of them, the metro parks especially, were just um, leisure parks today with the more recent kind of community grassroots efforts at at, um, community gardening and urban agriculture. There are a lot of some areas of these parks. So Rouge Park in Detroit, um, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has the D-Town Farm, which is kind of within Rouge Park. Um, There are some greenhouses on Belle Isle um, that are used for growing food or were at least. Um, but really a lot of the community gardens and, and 
Um, vegetable gardens are are taking place on on what were empty lots, vacant of their former uses, um, and and other green spaces in the city. So not so much in these in these parks at this moment. Well, let me ask you kind of an off the cuff question: Why uh, why did you like Detroit? Why did you uh, want to write a whole book about just Detroit? What about the city attracted you to it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the really grassroots communities and activist communities in Detroit that are really committed to the city are what attracted me to it. And seeing the really inspiring work that they were doing kind of made me um, want to know more about it and, and kind of help help understand the longer history of greening and, and park building and community gardening in Detroit, because I think it's a history that's not not particularly well known and and Detroit is so well known for things like we were talking about earlier in the interview like um, right or wrong images of crime and and inequity and and abandoned buildings and people who were guarding in the city that was just not my kind of impression of the city or the people there at all once I I met them when I moved to this part of the state um, and I think that that really inspired me to want to know more and, and write a whole book about Detroit because I think there's so much there. And some of the lessons as we were talking about are applicable to other cities that have faced similar issues as Detroit, but but really Detroit has such a widespread community and urban um, farming community right now. I think it's it's really leading the way in that regard. And and so that's really why I think Detroit deserves a whole book and, and probably many more books. And I hope that that other people will go out to other cities and find connections and and that, but really, I thought it there was enough there that it merited a a whole book about about greening the city. Oh yeah, um, well, today you talk about yeah, we talk a lot about of course community gardening and urban revitalization, and um, now we're getting up to 1979, and you have uh, 300 urban gardeners gathered at the Bandshell on Bell Island to take part in a citywide Detroit Harvest Festival. So. You know, you know, urban gardens. You know, some projects work. Sometimes they don't. Uh, what do they do? They do anything right? How long did it last? Yeah, I mean, there's always um, kind of an ebb and flow, especially to community gardening efforts. You know, with things like Victory Gardens or Pingree's potato patches that we were talking about earlier, they seem to to pop up in moments of economic crisis or when people don't have access to to healthy food. Um, and that was the case kind of in the 1970s when Detroit is really facing a lot of, and the 80s, um, deindustrialization, jobs moving away from the city, but people, especially African-American communities who aren't able to move up economically or don't want to leave Detroit because it's been their home, um, are in, were seeking out kind of ways to, to grow their own food, partly because grocery stores left the city and there wasn't access to healthy vegetables and, and fruit and that, but also because it was a way to kind of beautify the city and, and really come together as a community and create the kind of city and, and place that they that they wanted it to be. So in the 70s, there was again kind of some some governmental support in, in collaboration with nonprofits through the Farm A Lot program, which Coleman Young, Detroit's first African-American mayor, um, started to kind of help people who wanted to cultivate land on vacant lots, either next to their homes or in other parts of the city. So that really created some, some stability, some access to tools and resources to grow food for people that wanted to. Um, and so that's where kind of I placed the the origins of the more recent urban gardening movement in the city that that kind of continued with activists like Grace Lee Boggs and the Detroit Summer 
program, which gardening between kind of African-American elders and, and youth in the city was a big part of that kind of community building effort of growing food and, and creating community spaces. Um, so it's it's since the kind of 80s and 90s and into the present, there has been this more stable, I would say, kind of effort and and coalition building and community building around um, urban farming and, and agriculture in, in Detroit um, or or community gardening, rather, um, in Detroit that's given it some stability and, and really growth and made Detroit a, a leader. So I think they're doing some things right with the with many different kind of community organizations like um, Keep Growing Detroit, um, Earthworks Urban Farm, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Kind of these are some of the main community gardening and farming organizations in the city that are help giving it a real sense of stability, even when the city itself isn't always... Um, as supportive or as able to support um, community gardening efforts. So residents have really taken it in their own hands. And because it's it's been so popular, it's had some some staying power with, with kind of different generations being invested in it. Um, I think that also helps to give it a, a staying power. People really see these gardens as a part of their their lives and livelihood in the city. So I think that's what what's given this this current moment made it more popular than it than it has been. Yes, yeah, so, and with the pandemic and everything, um, people still gathering around food. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, when you were talking, it made me think, you know, um, did in your research, did these community gardens, did it have any other positive benefits like reducing crime or um, et cetera, et cetera? Did you find anything like that? Yeah, I looked more at the kind of history of them and the the kind of cultural aspects of them, but... Um, there have been studies that have shown that community gardens have reduced crime and, and created a greater sense of community in the city. Um, so I think there are, I'm not an expert in that particular area, but they have had success in definitely in providing access to food and, and kind of um, sometimes economic um, vitality for young people who work on the farms um, and, and other residents who are able to sell kind of value-added products that come from the, the farming. So I think it has had positive kind of social benefits as well, though I'm not as familiar with the the specifics around around some of those. Um, another question with this, um, in these community gardens, you know, how much food does it produce? Does it, does it produce enough to um, feed a family for, you know, six months a year? Because it gets cold up there. I'm from Florida and you guys are it cold does. up there. So <laughs> yeah, kind of the huge dream of, of urban gardens and farms kind of feeding and sustaining the whole city is probably at this point anyway, a bit unrealistic, but they do produce quite a bit of food. I don't have the number kind of in front of me, although there are some in the, in the book that you can can flip to, but they do produce quite a bit of food. Some of it goes to like things like CSAs, um, um, some of it goes to food pantries to feed kind of those who are more in need. Um, some are selling it to restaurants in the city. So there is kind of a limited growing period, obviously, up here where it gets cold. They extend that somewhat with things like hoop houses that allow them to start the growing season earlier or end it a little bit later. Um, but yeah, there is, it's, you know, can't feed the whole city, um, but it does make a dent in kind of, um, especially giving people access to, to fresher um, produce. Well, now, on page 140, um, I was a 4-H'er, and uh, I thought it was great because uh, it was everybody together. We did 
the the county fair and we did all kinds of different projects, et cetera. Um, and you're talking about 4-H book. How was that a contributing factor to uh, developing uh, urban gardens? Did it get the young people involved up there in Detroit in the city? Yeah, it actually did a little bit. Um, originally in the in the 70s and 80s, there was a, a USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture sponsored urban gardening programs in a variety of cities and including Detroit um, and Michigan State University, which is um, Michigan's land grant college and, and home to kind of the ag school in that, had some extension service agents and, and kind of 4-H programs that that were involving kind of young people from from Detroit and and on urban farms. Um, they often got to visit more rural farms, and actually farmers from more rural areas um, often came and plowed up some of the land and assisted in that way. So there was some some limited kind of um, success or involvement from from 4-H and and farming communities that that did help support and and provide some knowledge to to urban gardeners in the city that that kind of helped them with their own knowledge, kind of create more vibrant and and productive garden spaces for sure. And kind of cultivated an interest in gardening as you were suggesting. Yeah. I never, because 4-H is considered to be like a rural type thing, but you've got it uh, working there in a, in a big city. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty cool. So um, you're also talking about here uh, community gardens today, and you've got a picture of tomato plants with the Detroit skyline, the background, um, how, how, what are they doing today, uh, with community gardens, gardens and, and how is it working? Yeah. I mean, they're the org- organization keep growing Detroit kind of has a, um, a network of, of support, both in terms of providing seeds and technical assistance to gardeners in the city. Um, so there are kind of these these networked organizations like that, the Greening of Detroit also, that kind of provide resources to to families, to school gardens, to to communities who want to start a, a community garden um, or urban farm. So there's this kind of network of of nonprofits that that really helps to um, kind of sustain the the urban gardening and urban greening movement in in Detroit right now, especially since the government has been. Um, or city government has been kind of unwilling or unable to to provide that support. So it really has been more of a grassroots effort, which I think help has helped give it life and and helped it sustain itself. Some organizations like the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network are really um, focused on the African American community in Detroit, um, which makes up about eighty percent of the population at this point, um, and are really invested in kind of empowering African American. African Americans to to see urban farming as as um, you know a means of of enriching themselves and empowering themselves to have some some control over their communities while providing access to food. Some like the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm um, are really vested in creating kind of a, a dynamic community space. So they have um, a kind of urban farm um, that also has like artistic programs happening, other things happening to kind of support the neighborhood, um, really making gardens kind of community centers. Um, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has also started the process of creating a co-op so people will have more local ownership and control over their food supply rather than kind of outside grocery stores or or change in that. So they're really trying to put power in the hands of a longtime Detroit residents who have often been um, powerless or not had access to power in the same ways as white residents. So I think there's a lot of a lot of movement on that front. Well, now let me ask you too, because I, I saw this here. Um, 
we talked a lot about the African American communities, but is there um, a Latino community that's uh, in Detroit? There is. Southwest Detroit is home to a pretty prominent Latinx community and, and communities. Um, I didn't, in my book, um, focus too much on them um, explicitly, but there are um, vibrant community gardens in that area of the city and, and really a vibrant um, Latinx community communities um, in Detroit, too, that are, that are kind of a part of this. They don't have... Um, the same kind of organization, at least not to my knowledge, in terms of of urban gardening, but they're definitely a part of the that movement too. Um, so you also talk about divided garden, the gentrification of select neighborhoods. Um, are, are now in the suburban area. Now, what is the state of Detroit today? I mean, how is it just barely before pre pandemic? Um, is it still industrial, or uh, what is the economy like in Detroit? Yeah, I mean, it's still the audio, auto industry still still dominates a lot of it, but there have been tech firms and, and kind of that type of, of financial services and things moving into some parts of the city um, downtown and, and kind of revitalizing um, the, the center city. But a lot of that, again, is, is quite uneven in terms of who has access to that. And, and so you're seeing a lot of... Um, you know, white residents that are working in the city and even living in parts of the city, but that's been pushing out um, more longtime residents or hasn't been affording them the same access to those opportunities. Um, with gardening's popularity, there are often kind of urban homesteaders who come in and without much history in the city and, and kind of start gardens that sometimes might get along very well with longstanding gardens and farms. Other times are maybe competing or kind of don't have the same connection. But I think a lot of the urban gardening movement in the city has really been about building coalitions and, and taking a stand in the city for, for longtime residents. So um, it's been one way to kind of um, preserve some land and, and try to fight against some of the gentrification that's been happening in the city. But because Detroit is such a, an open city in a lot of ways, um, I would say the gentrification has been in, mostly in the midtown area and um, downtown area rather than outlying outlying neighborhoods. So in your conclusion, in your learning with Detroit, what are some some lessons learned? Um, and I, I did see this, you know, Detroit uh, had to file for bankruptcy and they've had other financial troubles. Are they rebounding uh, pre-pandemic or how are they doing now during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think like everywhere, there are a variety of challenges. And I think because of things like access to health care and, and other longstanding inequities, Detroit was pretty hard hit by the pandemic. Um, but I think prior to that, it was seeing kind of an economic rebound in some ways. But there are always there's always going to be inequality with that. And so a lot of the urban gardeners and communities are really... Um, yeah, try still going strong, I would say, during this time and really filling a need in the city for access to food, especially with the pandemic. So I think um, there are still people, you know, working on gardens. They're still as as strong as ever, I would say. And um, yeah, with the bankruptcy in that, Detroit kind of had started to see a, a comeback, so to speak, but it's not kind of the widespread um, equitable comeback that that many residents are are hoping for. So I think there's still definitely a lot of um, a lot of work to do that will be more challenging in some ways with the with the pandemic. But I think um, Detroiters are are up for the challenge and and kind of have a strong network in place to to make some some progress. Um, now this is just more of a curiosity question. So does downtown Detroit have like 
historical downtown streets or, or anything like that? Or is it just mostly, is it more sp- like, I hate to say it like this, uh, urban sprawl or, or what is kind of the composition of the city? Yeah, so downtown there are skyscrapers, especially from the early 20th century. Um, as you saw in that photo, there is a skyline downtown. It's not maybe as as dense as Chicago or New York or places like that. So Detroit is a little more spread out. So it kind of has a, a central downtown area with historic buildings and that kind of um, close to the riverfront and then kind of going out on on Woodward, um, a couple miles, you reach the the cultural center. There's a new streetcar line that runs up and down. That's where the Detroit Institute of Arts is. It's kind of another kind of cultural hub with some old buildings and that. And in the neighborhoods, there are lots of historic structures. But I would say Detroit is a really kind of spread out city. So it's quite um, quite large. There's some statistic that I'm not going to remember correctly in the moment that like San Francisco and New York and and another city, Boston maybe would kind of fit with inside the the square miles of Detroit. So it's um, it's quite a spread out city. So in that way, it doesn't have some of the large, you know, like the apartment buildings kind of things that you would see in New York or Chicago kind of step up row houses. It has more single family homes, even within the within the city limits, even if they're a little close together. Okay. Now, I don't, this wasn't covered in your book, but I'm going to ask, are they doing any rooftop gardens or anything like that in the in the city? Yeah, there's a little bit of that, to my knowledge, on some of the newer or kind of repurposed industrial buildings, but mostly because there is so much land in Detroit, it's not... Um, there's not a real need to to go up on the roof, so to speak, because there's so much land that's that's available for use kind of in the... Either in lots that are empty of their former uses... Um, or just in yards because Detroit has bigger yards than many urban areas. So there's not as much of a need to grow up on the, on the roofs as, as there might be in other places like New York. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, I since this is a listening medium, I want to tell you, I love the, uh, the cover photo here. You've got like car tires and you've got people growing vegetables inside the car tires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the map, you got a, a nicety of, of Detroit in the background. It gives a good uh, uh, juxtaposition of what Detroit is all about cars and vegetables. Basically, yeah, those are. I think um, moving forward, those are kind of two of the things that that Detroit will will really be be known for because the urban gardening movement is is so strong there and, and important. Um, well, Joe, you know, thank you so much for being here today. And this book is it's really fascinating. I've really enjoyed reading it. And so uh, can you tell the audience? Oh, yeah. And can you tell the audience what are you working on now? Yeah. Um, so I don't have a, a tenure track job that allows me to do kind of a lot of a lot of research, but I think kind of working on now, mostly focused on my job supporting graduate students, and I'm on the board of the Michigan Humanities Council, so doing some statewide public humanities work with conversations that hope to bring together rural and urban parts of the state. Um, but in terms of research and future writing, I hope to one day kind of look at maybe the history of tourism in the Great Lakes region um, and environmental um, environmental efforts in smaller cities like Kalamazoo, where I grew up, um, that I think also kind of have a, a long history of environmentalism that's that's often not as as well known. Um, well, Joe, again, thank you so much for being here today, and I want the audience know this is Motor City Green: A Century of Landscapes and Environmentalism in Detroit by We'll say it's Joseph Sidella, C I A L E. 
D-E-L-L-A, so they can go Google it. Um, and it was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. And um, I'm again, I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for new books in architecture with a special mini series in landscape architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And uh, thank you for listening today. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate it. It was fun.